The prophet Isaiah says, For Zion's sake I will not be kept silent. For Jerusalem's sake I will not rest until her vindication shines like the dawn and her salvation shines like a burning torch. Now, would you all please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. I saw the gentleman walk by my window in my office upstairs before I heard him knocking on the door. I don't know if you know this, we get a lot of foot traffic here at our church because our our parking lot is a cut through from two pretty major roads. And every once in a while, someone will stop by at our main entrance and they'll knock on the door because they're looking for the preacher. Uh, A few of those over the last uh, year and a half have asked for directions. They want to know where such and such place is. Uh, Others have wanted information about our church, what time do we worship, that sort of thing. But the overwhelming majority of those people are looking for some help. People who need some help. People who benefit from something like acts in our community. And so I stood in the doorway. I opened the door and I welcomed the man in. I shook his hand. I said, hey, why don't you come inside? It's much warmer in the church than it's cold outside. So come on in. So we came in and we sat down together. He told me about his life, as usually happens. He told me about the ups and the downs. He told me about his children and his wives, the bottles. The sobriety. He told me that he's currently employed by the federal government, but like many, he's not getting paid right now. And then he said, Why is God doing this to me? Why is God doing this to me? Uh, On Thursday, three white Chicago police officers were acquitted on charges that they had conspired and lied to protect another white police officer who had fired 16 deadly bullets into a 16 year old boy named Laquan McDonald. The officers claimed that the young man had swung a knife at them repeatedly and that that warranted 16 bullets that killed him. And even though they had evidence, video cam evidence, that none of this had happened, all of the police officers were let go with no penalties. There was a pastor in the room when it happened. And so he walked out of the courthouse uh, to the first camera and he said to anyone with ears to hear, how could God let something like this happen? How could God let something like this happen? I went to get my oil changed on Thursday. I was sitting in the waiting room, uh, and a woman who was there leaned over, and she said, Hey, what do you do for a living? And I made a mistake, because I told her the truth. And so we started talking, and I learned a little bit about her life. And she said, You know, the church I grew up in was the best church in the whole wide world. The people in that church, salt of the earth. They made me into the woman that I am. I said, Oh, that's so great. I said, Well, where do you go to church now? And she laughed. She said, I haven't been to church in a long time. I said, oh, interesting. And she said, you know what's also funny? That church that I grew up in, the one with the salt of the earth people, the best church in the world, they closed it down a couple years ago. And I thought the conversation was over. So I went to grab a book to do some light reading, and she left this lingering question hanging in the air. Why would God let a church die? Why would God let a church die? Why is God doing this to me? How could God let this happen? These are questions that we're always asking ourselves, and we are people who are looking for answers. And so are the people of Israel. They had been exiled to Babylon. They were conquered, humiliated, and carted away as strangers to be planted in a strange land. An entire generation would pass 
with them in exile before they could return to the land that God had promised them. Most of them only knew about that place through the stories that their parents and their grandparents told them. And so it's not hard to imagine that the so-called people of God, far away from home, were asking themselves, how long is this God going to remain silent? It's all good and nice to hear about what God did for Abraham, what God did for Moses, what God did for David. But when is God going to do something for me? These questions, these questions about God's agency, they appear all over the Old Testament. They're all over the New Testament. Frankly, they're the kind of questions that everyone in this room has asked at some point or another. And if you haven't yet, I promise you, you will one day. And so it's in the midst of utter hopelessness, with no sign other than the words of aging relatives, that Isaiah shows up with a, an announcement like electricity. I can't keep quiet. For the sake of God's people, I will not remain silent. God has given me something to say. So much of what we do in the church today, whether it's a sermon or a program, it really boils down to this. What are we going to do about it? We confront a particular issue and we come up with a particular response. In sermons, they end with what I call the lettuce moment. Let us now go in the community to fix all of the wrongs we encounter. Let us challenge the powers that be. Let us make the world a better place. And yet, if you heard what Isaiah said, he doesn't tell God's people what to do. He begins by demanding that God needs to do something. That God needs to make good on God's promises. Part of the power of the book, the Bible, the Holy Scriptures, what we read at home or what we read at church, is that it has good news for people who are experiencing bad news. But another part of the Bible is its, a power, is its power to, and its ability to name the truth of the realities that so many of us are facing. We've been spending this month talking about what's right with the church instead of focusing on what's wrong with the church. And I can think of no better way to put it than this. The church, it tells the truth. It tells the truth about us, the truth about the world, and the truth about God. Nothing in the Bible makes a whole lot of sense unless we are people of faith who believe that it's true. It's as simple as that. But of course there's this tension. There's this tension about what God says. It's the same tension we had in Advent when we wrestled between the already and not yet. Isaiah announces and reminds God's people about God's promises. God has not, God will not abandon God's people. But that strikes a rather dissonant chord when we consider how messed up our world is. I mean, what good is the promise of God's presence when all we're experiencing is tragedy and suffering and darkness? I get asked so many questions. There's something about being a pastor that makes people believe I get to see behind the curtain. That I've got all the answers to all of your questions. But to be abundantly clear, there is no good answer to the suffering in this world. There just really isn't. And for instance, if I have to hear another pastor preach a funeral sermon for a young person who has died, and they say something like, God, I just want another little angel in heaven. I'm going to take the Bible out of the pew in front of me, and I'm going to throw it at the face of the pastor. <laughs> you all laugh. I am dead serious. There is nothing worse you can say to a grieving parent than, oh, God just wanted another little angel in heaven. Because that makes God into a monster. A monster who murders babies just so God can have them. That is not the answer to suffering in the world. 
And yet, it's the kind of comfort we give the afflicted all the time. And there are, of course, there are, of course, bad things that we experience in this life that we can point to the powers and the principalities and the personalities in the world. And we can, we can laud our charges against them. People and institutions that are responsible for something. Like yesterday, during a peaceful indigenous people's march in D.C., a group of young white Christian men surrounded and belittled an elderly Native American man while he was chanting and playing a drum. Young Christian men... And so we can point at the powers and the principalities and the personalities that reward that type of bullying and that kind of discriminatory behavior that resulted in the scene from yesterday. We can call into question the behaviors and the practices and the motives and the ideologies that led to something like that. But that still doesn't answer the question of suffering in the world. Because there are indiscriminately horrible things that happen to people that are far beyond explanation. So as Christians, what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to respond to those kind of things? Should we sit around twiddling our fingers in our own exile? Should we sit back and wait for God to give us something to say? Should we offer those trite and cliche and horrible things that so many people say to those who are suffering? I think one of the best responses to suffering in the world is what a theologian named David Bentley Hart calls rage against explanation. Because as Christians, we are called to rage against this desire and this drive to explain everything as if God allowed something to happen or God willed something to happen. Because it's the people who try to fill the void created by tragedies with explanations of God's plan that make him into that vindictive monster instead of the one who knows the truth of our suffering. I've shared a number of times uh, that when I was in seminary, I was fortunate or unfortunate, uh, to work at Duke Hospital for a year. I was one of their on-call chaplains, which meant I had to show up at 7 o'clock in the morning, and I was not allowed to leave the hospital until 7 o'clock the next morning. And they very foolishly gave me a white lab coat. It made me look like a doctor. A very small print said pastoral services, but patients didn't look at what it said on your chest. I would walk into a room and someone would say, Doc, my platelets are low, what should I do? And I'd say, let's pray about it. <laughs> it was a very, very difficult experience. Uh, Duke Hospital has more deaths annually than any other hospital on the East Coast. Uh, it's because it's a last resort for people. It's where you go when the hospital you go to doesn't have an answer for you anymore. And as the chaplain, I was responsible for being in the room for every death that occurred for those 24-hour periods. So I had three beepers on my belt for three different wings in the hospital. And when one of them beeped, I had to look at the room number and I had to run. It was the policy of the hospital. The pastor had to be present for every death, whether the person wanted the pastor there or not. And so those three beavers haunted me. Like truly a thorn in my side every 24-hour shift because I would get that beeper and I'd look at it and I'd have to run to someone's room. Sometimes it was an old person, sometimes it was a middle-aged person, sometimes it was a baby, and I had to be there. And that doesn't include all the people who just wanted to talk to a pastor. So I get another beeper and say, we need you in room 2202. I run down the hallway. And one night I ran down the hallway to this room. And I found the doctor outside. I said, what does the person need? What does the patient need? And he says, I don't know. I can't give her anything else. You've got to help her. So I walked in. I went into a room and I announced myself. I said, hey, I'm Taylor. I'm the, I'm the chaplain tonight. 
And she looked at me in my eyes, and then she rolled away from me and looked out the window in silence. And so I pulled up a chair, and I sat down next to her, and I was exhausted. I'd gone from death to death to death to death. I just sat there in silence, and I was like, God, can you just give me something to say? Because I don't know what to say. And God didn't answer me. So I put my hand in my pocket, and I pulled out the Bible. I said, well, if I don't know what to say, surely there's something in here that can help me. And so I opened it up to a random psalm, and this is what I said. How long, O Lord? How long will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I bear pain in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day long? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep the sleep of death and my enemy will say, I have prevailed. And she rolled over with a slight smile on her face. She said, it's nice to know that somebody else knows how I feel. It's nice to know that somebody else knows how I feel. How long, oh God, are you going to leave me in the midst of this? How long are you going to let this pain surround me? It's nice to know that somebody else knows how I feel. God is God, and we are not. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. God's ways are not our ways. Only when we begin to grasp even the smallest bit of God's greatness, of God's mercy, of God's grace and majesty and otherness from us, then the news of Isaiah's proclamation rings all the more true and all the more strange. God rejoices over you and over me. There is no good explanation for why certain things happen. We can't make sense of all the senseless things that happen each and every day. But those things are also not the end. Because the Israelites, the ones who heard about this promise that you're going to return to the promised land, they did. After a generation, they were returned to the promised land, but it was not what they had imagined. They still continued to suffer. They still continued to die. They still continued to be outcast and marginalized. But one day, many, many years later, God acted in the most definitive act until that point in history, in the incarnation, fully God, fully human, Jesus of Nazareth, came from the far country of God's divinity to dwell among us, and then paid the ultimate price so that the promise would come to fruition. Not for an individual, not for a nation, but for the entirety of the cosmos. Promises that we can barely imagine are made manifest in the person of Jesus Christ. One of the things we're so steeped in the world around us, we are so steeped in a desire to find order in, in the midst of chaos, to have an answer for all of our questions that we forget in scripture and in life, God does not speak to us of why things happen to certain people. Instead, God speaks about how things can be. God speaks to us not in explanations, but in promises. The promise that's made possible for you and me even in death, to be resurrected to life. What Isaiah announced to the people of Israel, God has revealed to us in Jesus. We who were once far off, we who were removed by our own exile, have been brought near by the blood of the Lamb who was slain for the world. So, we can rage all we want. 
We can lift up our clenched fists in anger to the sky. We can call out the powers and the principalities and the personalities that are responsible for so much suffering in this world. But we can also rage against explanation. And we can walk hand in hand and side by side and shoulder to shoulder with the very people who need it the most. And I assure you that is the greater call. To walk hand in hand, to walk side by side, to walk shoulder to shoulder, knowing that God will see us through. So I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.